Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. This is transmission number 37. All right, so I haven't uploaded in a little while. I was having some technical difficulties. Got a new camera. I was changing some settings on my audio. I'm new to this, so I'm playing around with some things. And as I recorded a couple episodes, find out that either the audio or the video was messed up or was not right. Since I'm a one-man operation, it is very time consuming and I have a full-time job and I go to school and I have a family. I'm here now. Things seem to be working out okay. That will continue to stay that way and I could continue to get these podcasts and these videos up in a timely manner going forward. So we're going to continue where we left off. Um, reading out of About Face from David Hackworth. So where we left off last time, Hackworth gets severely wounded on Hill 400. He's getting ready to make his way back to the States. He get, ends up going to Japan as he recovers from his wounds. And then he meets a girl there named Katie. She works for the Red Cross. They make plans to be together once he goes back to the States. And once she comes back, they have this Hollywood movie style goodbye where he's on the back of the boat and looking at each other and they're waving until they can't see each other anymore as the ship goes off into the distance. He goes on to say that he never saw Katie again after that. Then he goes back to, he's on his way back to the States. He's on the ship. He's pulling into San Francisco and he sees the San Francisco bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge. And he says, wow, I remember seeing this bridge back when I was 14 years old. And he ended up doing a tour with the merchant Marines, right? So he ends up faking documents saying that he's 16. He's really 14. And uh, he gets some drunk to pretend to be his father, signs the papers, he goes off, gets on the wickets with the merchant marines. And while he's on out there, he's going to Guam and a couple of bunch of small islands. And once they dock at the port, he throws his stuff overboard, jumps off the ship, swims to shore. And then he goes and he meets up with some infantry marines that are on the island. And he goes around patrolling with them. Now, World War II is over by now, but there's still some Japanese on the island that are not accepting that the war is over. So as they're patrolling, sometimes they make contact with these Japanese and they get into some skirmishes with them. This kid's 14 years old and he's tagging around with infantry <laughs> Marines and uh, getting, into, getting into some trouble with them. So he, they take him under his wing. He wants to be a Marine. So then on one of his excursions off the boat, he cuts his foot on some coral and they send him back home on the ship. And when he gets back to the States, to the Golden Gate Bridge, where he's now returning again, he remembers there being a huge parade, a huge hero welcome for him and everybody else that's coming back on the ship. This is just after World War II. So now he says, this couple of things going through his mind. And then he starts thinking about what his life would have been if the father figure in his life hadn't gone to the war. So remember, he's pulling up to the Golden Gate Bridge, right? It says, but it was not 1946 anymore. It was 1952. And though the Golden Gate appeared on cue, then and there, that similarity ended. Before we even docked, I knew no one would be asking me about my time and how I got wounded, or even how the war went. The harbor was ours alone. Other than the pilot boat with its grim-faced officials who came on board to facilitate our unloading. There were no bands, no banners, no sides, no girls. There was nothing really at all. So then he goes on to talk about how 
he loves parades. He loved the drone ceremony about the military. Loved being in formation, marching, doing uh, weapons arms, left shoulder arms, right shoulder arms. He loved the sound of everybody's boots hitting the deck at the same time. He loved that. He wanted to be a part of that. He loved it. What he was never accustomed to was being the sole purpose of the parade. So when he went back to his hometown, his brother had coordinated a parade for him. He's the only guy, the whole parade is for him. So he's kind of, oh man, I like parades, but I wasn't, I don't like really being the center of attention. He likes being a part of the parade. He likes participating in it. He likes doing the drill and ceremony, but he's not used to being the subject of the parade. All right. So we're going to pick up, let's flip the script. It says, as the parade swung by Robert's market, I thought how different it all might have been had Bob Ross not gone off to war. Bob Ross was the father figure that he had that gone off to war, right? It was his family owned Robert's market. When I started working there at the age of eight, first I had just hung around. Eventually he started to pay me out of his own pocket. First a quarter a day, then a quarter an hour. And then I worked for him whenever I could. Bob was like a real father. He was the one person who took a genuine interest in me as a kid. But then the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor and he went off to the Air Corps to be a fighter pilot. So there had gone my father figure. Still, Bob had written pretty often. He told me about the flight school and the Army Air Corps life. I used to tell people the reason why I didn't have a father around was a point of great embarrassment to me was that he was a Marine fighting in Guadalcanal. All the kids in school believed me, so it worked out well for me, and I felt a little important. And in my head, it made up for losing Bob to the war effort. But without a strong man's influence around, I had gone on my merry, delinquent way. In 1944, Bob Ross was killed in action. His death was yet another big signal for David Hackworth to go marching off to war. So I'd march off to war, and now I'd returned what I'd always dreamed of, a hero's welcome, a hometown parade. And for a moment, it was just all the pomp and none of the pain of being a soldier boy. All right. So now we're going to go into what Dave Hackworth did once he got back to the States, leaving combat in Korea. He was a commander in Korea, battlefield commissioned, and he felt it was his duty to go visit some of the families of the men that he served with that were killed in action. See what happens here. Let's continue. Let's flip the script. Jimmy May Morris' family lived in a tiny apartment in the Japanese section of Los Angeles. His sister opened up the door to the very neat third floor walk up and led me into the pale green living room where Jimmy's parents were waiting. Above the mantelpiece were hung two small crossed American flags. Below them was a basic training photo of Jimmy, young, innocent, and grinning. Below the photo, Jimmy's medals from Easy. It could take up to a year for his Raiders Award to be approved if it was. Civil stars, bronze stars, purple hearts, all hung up in a neat line. On the mantle itself rested an American flag that had draped his coffin, neatly folded in a tight triangle as per regulations. It was a little shrine to the fallen sun. Jimmy's parents spoke no English. His sister translated for us, and somehow it came out in the present tense. He is such a fine boy, such an honorable son. He loves you all like a part of his family. They told me how they waited on the section platform for the train to arrive and how proud they were when Jimmy came out. No matter how hard I tried, flashbacks to the hospital, it's that cold night when we went back and talked to the doc. I couldn't shake the feeling that any second now, Jimmy would be tearing through that front door with a huge grin on his face and he'd sit down and join us for tea. Then his sister started talking about when they put him in the ground. 
And in a rush, I was brought back to my senses. Tears streamed down my cheeks. My eyes burned. After all this time, reality had finally struck home. Jimmy was dead. His father said, do not be sad. Rejoice. He died defending this great country of ours. We are proud our son died in this country's name. I told them what a wonderful boy Jimmy was and how we all loved him. When I gave them the last picture I had of him, which was my unmarked copy of the Raiders group photo with all the guys, as we said goodbye, his father took my hand and held it for a long time. And then he bowed and wished me a happy life. I called Bill Smith's family from a phone booth in Mobile, Alabama on my way through Fort Benning. Bill's father's English was easy to understand and his message was short and sweet. I don't want to see you. You murdering son of a bee. You murdered my son for a bunch of Koreans. Don't come around here unless you want trouble. I was dumbstruck. Was this how most Americans viewed the war? In my mind's eye, I saw the Maymoras, shy, humble Japanese who had come to America and had not yet taken for granted our wonderful land of opportunity and freedom, who had not become callous when, just 10 years before, their new country had locked their people up as security risks simply because they were of Japanese descent, who were not bitter now, though their new homeland had taken their only son. And then to hear Smith's father, a real-life, probably seventh-generation nephew of Uncle Sam, who had for so long taken the American way for granted, that he'd forgotten, if he even knew, that there was a price of admission sometimes. But why young Bill Smith had to pay with his life for his family's ticket was something that I, at 21, could not begin to explain just as I could not explain Korea itself to a heartbroken father through a telephone wire. All right, so here we see two totally different situations of what Hackworth went to go visit parents of his fallen soldiers that he commanded. He had the Mayamoras, who were first-generation Japanese that came from Japan. They didn't speak English. His sister was able to translate. They were grateful. They were proud of their son dying in combat for the United States. They were proud. Yes, they were heartbroken, but they were still proud that their son laid his life down in the name of this country because they were proud to be American. They were proud of what America stood for and what America is. And then you have Smith's father, who, as Hackworth said, was probably some generation American. He's probably been here forever and was taken for granted the American way of life. Didn't understand there is a price for admission to this country, there is a price to be paid. That America is built on the blood of young men who have fought and died for this country's freedom. For hundreds of years, preserve the freedom of this country. Most Americans do not know war, do not know what war is like, do not know the horrors of war. They see it in the movies, but that is it. They've never experienced it. The overwhelming majority in America have no idea what war is. They don't understand the price. That freedom comes with and is taken for granted. America hasn't seen war on its mainland since the Civil War. I'm a descendant of Civil War veterans and Revolutionary War veterans. This is not knowledge that was passed down to me from generation to generation. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about my family up until my grandparents, to tell you the truth, from both sides. It took digging research to find out more. I did the ancestry. I did the family trees. I looked at everything and come to my surprise. I always had a hunch. I had a, yeah, I was always knew that growing up that my grandfather, my dad's side's family has been in the United States for a long time. I never knew how long. 
as far as I've seen, they've come, they came here in the 1600s. My mom's side from Poland, only a couple of generations. My grandmother's mother came from Poland. Grandmother was first generation. There's really no records from my mom's side other than when they got to the United States. So anything from Poland, there's not much there. There's not much records from Poland, but there are a lot of records from my dad's side of the family that was able to see, trace back to uh, pre-revolutionary war. But anyway, that was the last time that we experienced war in the United States. Besides Pearl Harbor, we have never seen enemy troops on our shores in any recent memory. Civil War, we were fighting ourselves. The last time that we actually had foreign troops fighting against us in the United States, so the last time was a long time ago. Americans are so far removed from the realities. Even in Europe, World War II, you know, that is still a, a memory in their minds. There's still people who lived during those wars, right? And how devastating it was, how it destroyed cities and their homeland. That's still a fresh memory in their mind. And they understand that tyranny has to be defeated. And what happens when tyrants take over, how devastating that is for a population. Something that Americans do not understand. Unless you've participated, have seen the horror. Not just from what happens in combat, but what happens when a country is ran by tyrants, dictators. That could happen here. We are not immune to this. All right, so we're going to flip the script. We're going to continue. Now, Hackworth is making the transition from combat officer to now a garrison-style officer in the States. So he realizes that he faces some challenges. He doesn't have the schooling as the other officers. So now he's got to go through like real officer training and to get up to speed on all of the administrative officer stuff. And so now he's going to be, we're going to read about that. All right, so let's flip the script. It goes, the U.S. Army's infantry school at Fort Benning was like a circus in the spring of 1952. And in the main ring, I thought, as I drove through the MP checkpoint at the final gate and on the post headquarters to sign in, on one side of the road, men from a parachute school were descending from a 250-foot towers. On the other, students were running, shouting, sweating down the road in tight formation of 40. Though not immediately within sight, I knew that somewhere on the huge, ever-expanding base, men were getting training in Ranger, Pathfinder, and other specialty skills, and that somewhere else the Officer Candidate School was pumping out platoon leaders at a furious rate. There was a great sense of urgency at this mecca of all things infantry, and I had a sense of relief. At least there was one place in America that fully understood we were engaged in a war, and as for the rest of the community I had just driven through, it seemed strictly business as usual and very unfamiliar to me. Since 1945, I had been stateside a total of maybe three months. My memories were of the war years, the lean years when no one was unaffected by events transpiring across the seas. My four-year stint in the dark, war-torn occupation Italy had me miss out on the post-war boom. Now, seeing only the results, I saw a country without cause. There was a war going on, yet there was no hardship on the home front. There was no rationing, no making do. Employment was high, prices were low, production lines were going full tilt, not just in the war effort, but to keep up with the every man's desire for a second car in his garage. Happy days were certainly here again. It was as if Korea, that distant battlefield, did not exist at all, or that the killed, 
the missing, the wounded in action were words reserved for someone else's son. To this date, more than 105,000 someone else's sons. I was the first student in the 121st Students Officers course to report in. My orders had been fouled up somewhere along the line and the classes didn't start for a week. I spent the first couple of days bumming around the post while future unfamiliar classmates trickled in. On the third day, I was walking out of the barracks when I saw lugging a duffel bag up the steps, my hero, my mentor, my friend, one second lieutenant, Steve Przenka. I didn't think anything in the world could have made me happier at that moment. Combat, he bellowed, dropping his gear and wrapping me in a huge Czechoslovakian bear hug. Gasping, I told him combat was now a first lieutenant. And though I made it a rule not to speak to second battalions, I would make an exception. With Slavic straightforwardness, he told me where to go. Meanwhile, the class filled up, 243 students in all. There were a few West Point University ROTC, distinguished military graduates, class of 51, but the majority of the students were battlefield promotions in Korea or direct commissions from Europe and stateside. The direct commissions were all infantry platoon sergeants with an average of about 10 years. The class formed into platoon. The student leaders were selected based on rank to huddle up routine administrative details, like getting us to class on time, but there was discipline problems from the start. Our CO was an Air Force major who did not know much about much. The place for us, a newly returned Korean vets, was an insult and a joke. The company grade course should have been something on the order of an obedience school for feral animals. Our class already had enough talent and combat knowledge to cadre a division within six weeks, make it the strongest fightingest unit in the U.S. Army. What we needed was instruction on being an officer in a peacetime role. Things like protocol, administration, report writing, and which fork to use. We, it was ridiculous, like sitting Ernst Hemingway down and teaching him about the alphabet. So it was a little wonder, like old pros who had packed these weapons across Europe, the Pacific, and Korea became resentful and openly hostile. No wonder we all started looking toward the other side of the fence. The grass over there was probably not much greener, but it was sure as hell a lot more fun. All right, so then, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. Basically, what happens is these young lieutenants, they start getting in trouble with the women in the surrounding city. These guys were either taking local girls as their new brides or guys that were already married were taking off their wedding wings and having flings with these girls and getting into a lot of trouble. So the command starts coming in and cracking down on all of this. Horrible examples were made of guys kicked out of their course for disciplinary reasons that finally settled down. But every week in class got smaller. Suddenly, another friend would be missing, expelled for flunking too many exams or for disciplinary reasons like trouble with the law, with girls or just not getting the class at all. The failures slipped away, rarely to be seen again on post. A failure at bending essentially meant the end of your career. All right, so we're going to stop here. And I think you get the point of what being a stateside officer in training was like for Hackworth. He thought he was learning administrative duties, paperwork, how to be a stateside officer. Instead, he's getting a refresher course in combat basics that he already knew from being a sergeant in the army and becoming battlefield commission and taking command of troops for a number of years already in combat situations. They come back stateside expecting to learn administrative stuff that they didn't know before. So you can imagine how frustrating that is for an officer. Has no idea how to be a real officer in the States. Like 
paperwork, administrative duties, and now you're being taught stuff you already know. It's a big waste of time. So most of these guys end up going out in town, getting in trouble with women, getting in trouble with the law, doing who knows what. A lot of these guys were getting kicked out. A lot of these guys were failing class. As Hackworth said, that was embarrassing to be failing at something that you had been competent in for the last 10 years of combat. The strange situation to be in. All right, so we're going to stop here and we're going to pick up with a net different book next time. Not sure what book it's going to be, but it's going to be different. Move on from Hackworth. We will revisit Hackworth again, but for now, I'm going to keep it moving with something else. If you have any book suggestions, hit it in the comments. Shoot me an email, shoot me a post, whatever. Hit me on uh, Facebook. You can listen to this podcast on Facebook now. You go to the Facebook page of Flip the Script Podcast. There is a tab that says podcast. You can listen to all the podcasts on from Facebook, as well as all the other podcast platforms. You can catch it on YouTube. Hit the like button, hit the share button, hit the subscribe button. Uh, share this with your friends. Get the word out. Uh, if you're listening, that means that you like it. If you have friends that are in the same mind state, mind thinking of you, are interested in the same thing, send this podcast to them. They might like it as well. All right, let's flip the script podcast out.